Good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. How are you all doing this morning? Good. My name's Alan, and feel free to have a seat whenever you're ready. And we're going to have a, just a little bit of time of some announcements, just so you know what's going on in the church family life this week. One really exciting thing, Awanas is officially starting this week. We had a great turnout. Yes. <clears throat> Sign up started, and uh, we had some good tacos. If you missed it, I'm sorry you missed it. You'll have to wait till next year. But start planning already. It's going to happen next fall as well. So just start going there. But, but the good news is, is if you didn't make it for the tacos, you still can get your kids signed up for Awanas. You can still bring them, and they can still be a part of it. Um, and so, but the official start is Wednesday. We're going to be here at 6 o'clock. We're going to have a time of worship music together, the different groups that are meeting that evening. And then we'll split apart. Awanas will be doing that as well, youth group as well, and the Pile group as well. So um, the other things to just take note of is, um, just so you're aware, next week's online stream is going to be a little bit delayed when it gets put onto our, our website. So it's not going to get posted until Tuesday, September 26th. Usually we try to have it out uh, in, the, in the afternoon, but just be aware of that change next week. Uh, other thing to notice is next Sunday, there's going to be the men's leadership class, and that's going to be at 8 o'clock here at the church. So men, if you want to be a part of the leadership class, just kind of learn what it means to be a man and all the different aspects of leadership that God calls us to in our families, in the church, and, and wherever that would be, that'd be an awesome thing to be a part of. So next week, 8 o'clock, and that's a monthly thing that happens. Uh, something that's happening today is this is going to be a fellowship lunch. And so what we're just saying is, hey, let's go meet all together at the food truck festival that's going to be out in front of City Hall, like that angle if I'm looking out here. And so that's just a great time for us to be together, but also be a part of the community as well. We want to be God's salt and light and be able to rub shoulders with everybody. We're, we're no better than anybody. So let's go be a part of the community and share God's love there. All right, with that, I'm just going to invite you to stand up again. We're not going to make you stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, but let's, I'll have you stand up, and we're going to do today's monthly memory verse together. And it's from Mark 9.35. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Mark 9.35. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we're so grateful that we get to be here this morning, that we get to worship with one another, that we get to lift your name up on high. And God, it is our heart's prayer, just like the song said, that we want to see your be kingdom being built. And thank you that you will partner with us as humans and in, in all of our limitations, but that you use us in an amazing way to see people's hearts and lives change, to see our community change for the better because of you. We're so grateful for that. God, we do just pray that you'll take this time um, for for our benefit, to help us to learn who you are, the character of you as a good and perfect God, and who we are as, as people who have sin and have brokenness, and we need forgiveness, and we need life change and transformation, and that's possible because of what you've done at the cross and raising from the grave, and you're ruling, and you will come back one day. We're so thankful for all of that. So God, this time is dedicated to you, and we just pray that you will move in our hearts and our lives this morning. In your name we pray this, Jesus. Amen. All right, church, I love worshiping God with you guys. Thank you, faith family, for worshiping with us this morning. And I just want to uh, give some shout outs because we got some awesome new faces in our crowd. And I just want to say welcome college students. We almost have a row of college students, guys. Can we just get an amen? 
Uh, yeah, so glad to have you guys. So glad that God is working in and through you. And as uh, we go, I've, I've got some kind of some cool news to share with you, or more of a, a fun little treat for us to share as a uh, faith family here. So I got a video from a good friend of ours. Many of you may recognize this guy, but I saw him this week and he wanted to say, hey, so. All right, well, First Baptist, I've got my good friend Tom here and he just wanted to say hey to you guys. Oh, hello, hello. Sorry guys, here, let me, let me get this squared away. There we go, let's try this again. Tom, take two. All right, well, First Baptist, I've got my good friend Tom here and he just wanted to say hey to you guys. Oh, hello, hello, hello. It's so good to talk with you. I've had a weekend or a few days here with Shane and Becky and uh, it's been so good to see them. But uh, I'm glad I can talk with you this way. I miss you guys. I'm doing pretty well. And you know, you know about my wife passing away, but God is good and uh, God bless you there. Oh, Tom was so excited. I said, Tom, we got to take a video so you can say hey. And he got so excited because he misses you guys. Um, he is uh, interim pastoring, as you can imagine, for another church in Arizona. That's why he had a tan. I'm just kidding. He told me I could tell that joke. Um, um, so Tom says hi. Brothers and sisters, before we jump into the Word of God, we've been going through the book of Mark. Um, I, I just want to do a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, last week, we talked about how God desires for us to invest in the younger generations. Okay, and, th and that, that is a big heartbeat of what God has for us. Well, we have an opportunity to do that at See You at the Pole, which is a nationwide kind of thing where we come around the flagpoles at our schools and we pray. We pray for our kids. We pray for students. We pray for teachers. We pray for our country. And so I just want to invite you at 7 a.m. If there's a school around you, go to the flagpole 7 a.m. and begin to pray for a movement of God starting in Riverton, moving into Fremont, and going across the globe. And so we want to be a people who pray for the kingdom of God to grow and move. And so I want to invite you 7 a.m. on the 27th, which is a Wednesday, to go to see you at the poll. Can we do that, church? All right. Hey, secondly, secondly, just a housekeeping thing. So the elders and I have been in immense and amazing and exciting conversations about and praying for and seeking what God's will is for our church. Many of you remember this summer, we went through what is God's purpose for a church? What are we to be a church about? What do we exist for? And then asking the question, what does First Baptist, why has God put us as a people group who love Jesus, who believe and follow him, why did he put us right here, right now for this time? Okay, and so the elders have been praying through and discussing our mission and our vision. And I just want to tell you guys, the more conversations I have with them, I'm getting more and more excited about the bold and the courageous future that lies ahead of First Baptist Church. And so with that, we're, we're uh, put here for such a time as this. I believe this uh, very, very much. And it means that there are some things that we might have to take some, some bold steps, some courageous leaps. We might have to change a little bit because the culture has changed. The gospel, by the way, doesn't change. Amen. But the culture has changed. And so in a way, we have to take bold steps to get the gospel that hasn't changed into a culture that has. So let me be clear. Our message does not change, but the culture that we share it has had a massive shift. We must not ignore the new world that we find ourselves in. 
And so for we as a church, here's what I'm asking from you right now. If you're here, would you begin to join the elders in praying? We want to pray and seek the face of God, and we want to seek his will for this church. What is it that God would have us be? What is it that God would have us do? What is our mission and our vision as a church? And so with that, um, if you see an elder and you have some thoughts or God's revealing to you some things that, that are in ahead of our future or, or, or uh, our interests and our giftings among the body, if there's something you want to express as we have this conversation, now is the time because we're setting the goal of January 1st. If we're going to take bold steps, it means that we have to make decisions, yes? So we're setting the goal of January 1st. We are going to launch our new mission and our new vision as a church. And we're going to try to phrase it and put it extremely clear so that all of us can march in line with what Jesus has for us to do in this time. So January 1st, mark your calendars. We will announce and begin to unpack what it means for us to take courageous steps in 2024 together, okay? Church, can you please commit to, this is a big thing. Okay, this cannot be something that Pastor Shane comes and says, this is what we need to do. We need to put ourselves at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you want from us as a congregation? With that, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Mark. And as you do, how many of you are fishers? Anybody fish a lot? Anybody know what I'm getting out here? How many of you love to fish during the summer? How many of you think that uh, fly fishing is the best fishing? Where's my people at? I see one. Thanks, Myron. Um, I brought my fly fishing pole out here because I was going to go ahead and just uh, put a fly on here. And I'm going to, are you guys ready? I was just going to try to catch a few of you if that's okay. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. But there's this thing about fly fishing. Um, as I've grown up fly fishing, it's taught me so much about the Lord and so much. I love to fish small streams, and I love fly fishing because you have to study what kind of fly the, the fish are biting on, right? And so you have to, I took a fly tying class where you can, you can wrap up, you can study the local flies or the local bugs, and you can start to wrap and make your own flies that they're going to bite on. And if your bait is not desirable to the fish, they're not going to bite on it. And uh, I'll never forget one time I was, uh, this was when Titus, Titus, I don't know if you remember this, but when you were four, I was trying to teach you how to fly fish. And I put the fly pole in his hand. And if any of you have ever taught a, a little how to fly fish, is it dangerous? Yeah, because they think they're going to get out there and go, whoosh, 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 whoosh. it's like it's a lightsaber, not a fishing pole, right? And I remember I handed the pole to Titus and he began to flip that fly back and forth. Like I was really brave. I put an actual fly on there and I'll never forget. He snagged my hat and my hat flew off. And I know he didn't do that intentionally, but man, I was freaked out. I was like, oh my goodness, that was almost my ear or my eye. I almost got hooked by this fly. Well, we're going to go into a passage. It's a, a pretty tough passage. And it tells us a little bit about the schemes of the enemy to catch us. The schemes of the enemy to make sure that he makes, if you're a believer here, we know Satan's number one goal is to make you ineffective in ministry. He wants to make you so that you do not impact anybody else for the gospel. And he wants to make sure that you're so distracted. And so he's baiting a hook. And so we're going to talk about the different hooks that he baits to make sure that we stumble, that we become ineffective for the gospel. 
We've been in the book of Mark, and as you know, the book of Mark is all about kingdom contrast. Jesus is now, he's shifted, his ministry is now walking straight to Jerusalem, where he will put his life on the cross. He will die on the cross. He knows it's coming. And so his urgency, his time with the disciples becomes shorter and shorter as they walk towards Jerusalem. And because because of that, he begins to become more and more intense and more urgent in what he teaches the, the disciples. And so he tries to set up this contrast of what is earthly way of thinking and what is a heavenly way of thinking. Do we struggle with that today? Yeah, our, our natural mindset is to sink back into earthly thinking when it is heavenly thinking that God, that Jesus calls us to and calls his disciples to. And he takes a particularly serious and somber note in this next passage. And so if you have it, would you turn to the book of Mark? We're going to be chapter 9, verse 42. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. And we'll start. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The first word I want you to see there is millstone. Um, I got to go to Jerusalem one time and I got to go to an, an olive oil factory and there was this huge millstone. You guys know what a millstone is? It's what they, they use to grind bread or grind the olives and squeeze the oil out of them. It's huge. Like the one I saw was as, at least as big as this rug and big and round. And they'd have this big thing that they'd have to churn whatever it was that they were crushing. A millstone was a massive stone as big and heavier than our cars. And here Jesus gets really somber and really intense with his disciples. And he says, it would be better. It would be better for him, if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And so uh, the context here, if you remember last week, Jesus takes this little child, right? And he, he talks about how we need to be people who welcome the next generation, who welcome children to Christ. And then he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble. So let's, let's talk about what this means. First, we need to ask, who is the who? Everybody say that with me. Who is the who? Who is the who? So there's really three people um, in the context of Jesus's ministry that we can talk about that are three types of persons that tend to cause these little ones to stumble. And we want to make sure it's not us. Yes. But let's take a look at three persons who cause the downfall of others. And we talked about a little bit of this last week. We talked about in Jesus's ministry, there were these Lots of religious people, yes? Pharisees and Sadducees, they were very religious people that had a lot of opinions about a lot of things. And they had a lot of ideas about how life was supposed to be lived. And they ended up being the greatest opponents to Jesus' ministry. And effectively, they ended up being the ones who advocated for his death on the cross. So one of the peoples that would cause a downfall for the little ones is a religious achiever. These types of folks in Jesus's ministry, as we've seen, they love to give rules and regulations to make God's grace unobtainable. So they'll think, say things like, you have to do this, or you have to look like me, or you have to do life the way that I do it. You have to dot, 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 in order to receive life with Christ. 
And a lot of times we make the caveat, you must be like me to be a Christian. It makes me think back to a day early on in my college uh, ministry, and I had a group of students. And uh, I'll never forget, the students pulled us aside and they said, Shane and Becky, you're sharing the gospel too much. We want you to stop. It's making everybody uncomfortable. And after fist pumping, we began to respond to their concern. And I remember sitting in this living room having this conversation, and I remember, uh, if you've often heard this misquote from Francis of Assisi, that's uh, share the gospel and, if necessary, use words. I've, I've heard that a lot. That's actually, Francis of Assisi didn't say that. But also that phrase is like saying, feed the hungry and, if necessary, use food. It doesn't make sense. But I remember sitting down with these students, and they were, they were trying to say, so I was like, okay, so how do you, we clearly see in the Great Commission that we're to go and make disciples. What does that look like to you? And I asked my students this, and they said, you know, Shane, I think that people need to look at our lives, and they need to love what they see so much that they want to be like us, and that's how they'll meet Jesus. That's not evangelism. That's not pointing people to Jesus. Who's that pointing people to? How many of you have kind of, casually made that your evangelism style if i live a good enough life that maybe people will see me and want to believe in jesus because of me i had a student that is struggling in her faith right now and she's struggling in her faith right now because she has spent much of her life with christ depending on other people in her faith and so now all of those people have failed her are we going to fail one another brothers and sisters so we cannot be people who build our faith around anything other than Jesus. And then we can encourage one another and we can disciple and invest one another, but our faith cannot be dependent on one another. Can I say that? So the religious achiever loves to be dependent on though, right? Look at me, look how good I am. You wanna be like me and that's how I'll introduce you to God. I want you to think about the life that the disciples lived. Did they live a life that any fleshly person would really want? No, they were sojourners. They didn't. Jesus said the, the Lord has no place to, to lay his head. In a sense, the disciples lived a really hard kind of life, chased from one city to the other because they were presenting Jesus. It cost them greatly. And at one point, Paul's like, we are thrown out. We are people that people don't want. The disciples did not live a life where everybody said, oh, my goodness, I, wanted, I want what they have. But they lived in such a life that it said, oh my goodness, these guys are willing to pay a cost that I would never pay. It must be something to their faith. So the disciples lived a life no fleshly person would want. Amen. We must never put speed bumps in the way of coming to Christ. And the religious achiever loves to create new rules and new ways of being, especially if those bumps, by the way, well, bumps I call preferences. Do all of us have a preference for how we do church? Do we have a preference for people we like to be around? Yeah. Right, But there's this idea that, that we need to abandon our preferences so that we don't cause another to stumble. Guys, when we step forward in the days to come, we're going to have to lay our preferences down about how we want to do church and how we want to do Christianity. we got to lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't care about my preferences anymore. You are my king. You are my Lord. How do you want to do it? That's lordship. But the religious achiever says that, no, my preferences are much more important than the movement of the kingdom. And so, brothers and sisters, we don't want to be somebody who causes the downfall of others based on and clinging to our preferences. A lot of times, these are well-meaning people with an ungodly emphasis. Well-meaning people with an ungodly emphasis. The next person that we see causes a downfall is the earthly reveler. 
the earthly reveler. And we live among many people like this. These are folks who love to celebrate what the world celebrates. So they celebrate sin. We've, we've seen marches celebrating the depravity of man. We've seen people have, you ever noticed, it's so interesting to me, people tend to wear t-shirts for the things that they promo. The things they really value, they wear t-shirts and they'll promo those things and they're really excited and they'll celebrate those things. And how often are they beer t-shirts? You know how many beer t-shirts I see? And there's kind of this celebration of, look at this substance that has destroyed a lot of people's life, but I'm going to celebrate it. Oh man, I just visited Colorado. Can I tell you what they're celebrating? And there's this sense of revelry where we get really excited. How many of you have ever been around that person that loves to just push people into sin? It's like, oh, no, that's not a bad thing. That's actually really cool. Students, you need to be aware that there's this earthly reveler all around us, oftentimes encouraging us to walk in ways that are not like Christ. They brag about the consequences. Have you ever sat down with somebody and they talked to them and they're like, yeah, man, this happened to me and this happened to me, and they begin to brag? about the evils that they've both partaken in and the consequences that they've received because of those evils. And they cheer others on to sin. Can we just recognize in our culture here in Riverton, right? There's kind of a cowboy farm culture, right? Are there sin revelers in the cowboy farm culture? Oh, yeah. Right? There's this sense where we encourage one another to, to deep sin and to, to, to drinking in excess and to, and let's be honest, our culture celebrates sex outside of marriage, doesn't it? Celebrate, encourage, watch a movie. Every single movie is being jammed down our throat that sex outside of marriage is to be encouraged. It's celebrated. It's celebrated. That's earthly reveler trying to make God, the opposite of living for Christ the norm. By the way, you talk about what you love, don't you? You ever notice that? What's that thing that you love that you could talk about with somebody for hours? Anybody have that thing? Right? Well, there's that sense that these folks really are professionals in earthly reveling, reveling in the things of this earth. And by the way, it's not always bad things, is it? Does it have to be a bad thing to become a sin thing? Like, there's a lot of good things that we can get so excited about to a point where it becomes sin because it replaces our pursuit of God. We just entered football season, didn't we, men? How many of you would spend four hours watching a football game, but you can't spend 10 minutes reading God's word? Do you have an idol problem? Ooh, pastor, don't go there. Don't go there. It just got really quiet. Nobody throw a football at me, okay? I'm not saying those are bad things, but I am saying when a good thing becomes or replaces a God thing, it becomes a sin thing. And so earthly revelers encourage this. And the last person who causes a little one to stumble is who? The great enemy, Satan, right? We have a, a Satan, as scriptures talk about, he's a roaring lion seeking those whom he will devour. And he is a professional at lying. He loves sowing lies. By the way, did you know his lies don't even have to be consistent? He can lie to this group over here and to this group over here, and he can turn them in on each other. And it's no skin off of his hide because he's one. There's no consistency. He doesn't have to be consistent. He just has to be really good at lying. So there's a sense that Satan is seeking those whom he will devour to cause the downfall. His whole goal, by the way, is to take away what Jesus is about to call your saltiness. He wants to dilute it, your saltiness. And we're going to get to that in a second. Ineffectiveness is his purpose for the believer. 
that you would not be salty, that you would be disqualified by distraction. And so Jesus says that we shouldn't take this lightly, but that it would be better for those to have a millstone hung around their neck than for them to go into hell. And I I just want to bridge this next part with this. Nobody taught about the inconvenient truth of hell more than Jesus himself. Did you know that? He taught in more detail and more consistently about this place called hell than anybody else in Scripture. And so it's not a Christian thing. It's a Jesus thing. It's in Scripture. We cannot deny the existence of hell. And therefore, Jesus starts in verse 43, different things, different things that will cause us to stumble that warranted such a response as that of hell. And so we're going to call this the hooks of hell, the hooks of hell. Let's read about the hooks of hell. Mark 9, 43. And if your hand, everybody behind your Hold your hand up. Your hand. Everybody got one of those? Two of those? And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Whoa, Jesus, that got kind of gruesome quickly. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. As I can't make this up, Jesus taught this. So what does this mean for us? Well, so let's talk about then at each of those junctures, some of your translations will put this phrase in between the hands, the feet, and the eyes is a description of hell. Where the This is a description of hell. You ready? Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So Jesus is actually referring to a physical place in their time. It's called Gehenna is the, the translation of the word Gehenna. And it was uh, an example. So Jesus is using a physical place as an example of what hell is. And to give a picture to his disciples. And outside of Jerusalem at that time, they didn't have trash men. How many of you are thankful for your trash men? But at that time, they would take all their trash outside of the city, and they would light it on fire. And and so there was a lot of death in this day. You know what they did with dead bodies? They would go out into this Gehenna, this hell, this awful place where the fire is always going. And so there would always be a plume of smoke, and during the day you could see the smoke, and at night you would see the embers burning. And so when Jesus uses Gehenna as an example for what hell would be like, it was a stark reality that the disciples would be sobered by. The worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. And so there's this warning for us. So let's talk about then the hand uh, and the feet and the eyes. What is Jesus referring to here? Well, first, the hands, they mean what we do. We do things with our hands, yes? Right? And when we do things with our hand, there's this interesting phenomena. We used to say in Christianity that right belief, if I believe the right things, then that would mean I would do the right things. But what we're finding in the younger generations today, and most humanity, not just younger generations, but that we will define what we believe by what we do. What, do I, what does that mean for us then? Oftentimes, we will justify sin. And so many of you have asked me, Pastor, why are they trying to rewrite the Bible? 
Okay, seen the headlines? Why do they want artificial intelligence to rewrite the Bible? Why are there all these movements that are trying to change the words of God? You know why? Because what they're doing is against the word of God. So they either have to change or they have to try to change the word of God. You see why? And so I, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse because there is a powerful motivation because people who do evil want to justify that evil. By the way, that was us, wasn't it? That was us. How many of you have found yourself trying to justify some of the actions in your past that you know, that you know, that you know were not okay, but you're trying to make them okay, and you're desperately clinging. You're opening God's word, trying to find a justification for what you know is not right. And you can do all kinds of hopscotch, I call it, in Scripture, and try to justify your position. How many people, and by the way, why are there so many different understandings, interpretations in the Bible? This principle right here. We define what we believe about God based on what we do. So why is it important that we start doing the word of God and not just hearing it? See what I'm saying? So the hook that Satan has prepared, that people prepare for us, is they want us and want to encourage us to rewrite the word of God. Many times, even in my history, when I was in college, it was really, really popular. There's a whole movement within Christianity to undo this idea of hell because it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Any of, any of you were like, yes, I can't wait to go to church today to talk about hell. It's an uncomfortable topic, isn't it? And if something makes us uncomfortable, we try to lighten it up. But the, the truth remains, this is a sober reminder, right? A sober reminder. What we do defines what we believe today oftentimes. And we ought not let that be the hook that causes us to stumble or causes us to be ineffective in the ministry, in the ministry. So brothers and sisters, would you be careful what you do? Would you make sure that it matches the word of God as best as you can. And that's what we do with this together in communities. Anybody perfectly follow the word of God? I should take my hand down because I'm not even qualified in that, right? None of us are. That's why we needed God's grace. But man, we sure take steps. Next, he uses the idea of feet. The second hook of hell is feet. Where we go, where we go. I talk about this with my college students all the time. Guys, can you set yourself up to fail? Can you put yourself in a position where you know you are going to walk away from the Lord? And so there's this sense, right? I'm not going to tell an alcoholic to go do ministry in a bar because that's going to be a setup. But where you go is important. And so there's this idea, the hook of hell is, is our feet. Where do we go? Do you put yourself in a position to fail? Religious people really uh, fall on this one. Um, it, and we're seeing it statistically. We're going to talk about this in our Tough Questions Sunday school class next week. But this idea that we're at a place where the church statistically, when it comes to pornography, is not different at all from non-Christian. Meaning that Christians today are watching and engaging in pornography as much as the world around us. There's no difference statistically. Are we, are we failing? If there's no statistical difference, something has gone wrong. And I think a lot of it, when I talk to young men, we put ourselves in a position to fail. We're not cutting it off like what Jesus told us to do, right? Pornography is more accessible than it's ever been in history. Some of you have seen that, right? It, the, our kids have instant access to some of the most perverse and awful things in their pocket every day. But where do we go? Where do we go all the time for our comfort? Where do we go? Younger generation. Have you seen younger generations do this? I'm feeling uncomfortable. Things are quiet in the room. Where do we go? 
We pull those screens right open, don't we? But where you go is important. Where we go, you can put yourself in a position to fail and walk in sexual immorality. We religious people who love rule following, we like to go right up to the line of sin, don't we? I always find this interesting when I talk to people, they want, as a pastor, they want me to give them, this is how far I can go, and this is how far is past the line of sin, right? How many of you have oftentimes wondered that? And so we love to set up this idea that, okay, here's the line, and if I cross it, then I've sinned. So what do we do? We get as close as we possibly can without sinning. Like, but that's not sin. And here's when I talk to young people, they're like, well, that wasn't premarital sex. Well, the word pornea actually means sexual immorality. It means anything that causes uh, sex, sexual thoughts, sexual desires outside of marriage. It's all-encompassing. It's not just the act of intercourse. Some of you are like, Shane, I didn't sign up for this this Sunday. But we as Christians, man, we like to get as close as we can to that line. And religious people, man, uh, we love to hug that line as close as we can. But I like to think about walking with God when we go where he's going. It's not a matter of hugging and seeing how close we can get to the world, but it's more of a direction, isn't it? When you repent, it literally means that you turn away from the things of this world and you walk as quickly as you can to the Lord in the opposite direction. And so it's not a line, it's a direction. Believers need to walk towards Christ, run to him as much as we can, and not hug the line of what the world values. So where we go, maybe for some of you that means don't go to the bar. For some of you that means staying on the streets instead of going to treatment when you know you should. Some of you, couples, I talked about this with couples a lot of times, Couples, if you can't handle the temptation, don't be alone. Don't be alone with uh, some member of the opposite sex that you can't control yourself with. Set yourself up to succeed because Jesus is worthy and your ministry is worth preserving. I've talked to some people, and in town we have a lot of people I think are what we call closet alcoholics, where they have a room somewhere in the house where they hide and they drink by themselves. If that's you today... I want to tell you, don't go into that room. Cut it out. Get it out of your life. Don't walk into, don't go where you know is going to lead you to, into sin. And the last thing is the eyes. And this is similar to the where you go. But what you behold is like what you, you become like the things that you behold. If you ever noticed junior high kids, they tend to look like the other kids they hang out with. It was interesting to me at the YMCA uh, in Estes Park this last week. And as we were pulling out, I looked, and there was this herd of gothic kids in the mountains. Yeah, I know, it was super bizarre. <laughs> it was very interesting because they all had black clothes in the middle of, of the mountain. But you know, you know why they dress like that? Because that's what their friends dress like. And who are they looking at? Who are they beholding? Who do they want to be like? So they began to dress like one another. I did this in high school. Anybody else do this in high school? Oh, man, you got cool kicks. I want to be like you. I'm going to wear kicks like you. Kicks are shoes for some of you older folks. But what we look at is what we become. And so when we become a people who behold Jesus, who worship him, who look at him, what do we become like? We get transformed from one degree of glory to the other and more and more in the likeness of Christ, don't we? And so we become like what we behold. Um, instead of more time looking at the world, the infinite scroll, anybody know? that is designed to keep you infinitely scrolling. Um, for you older generations, there's this thing called 24-hour news. 
Are you beholding 24-hour news more than you're beholding the Word of God? No wonder you're freaked out at the world. No wonder you feel like the world is hopeless. Did you guys know that it's the news job? They know that if they make you mad or if they bring up a topic that's fear-based, they know you're coming back. They know you're coming back. They've won their customer. They've won their customer. If you make... If they make you mad, you'll keep coming back. It's just a, a matter of time. What do you allow your eyes to feast on? Some are saying that the younger generations are spending as much as 11 hours a day. 11 hours a day on a screen. I'm super convicted by that. So Jesus doesn't suggest that we negotiate with sin. This is Alistair Begg. Quote from him says, Jesus doesn't suggest that we negotiate with sin. He actually calls not for negotiation, but amputation. Or if you like, for eradication. So cut the line. If there is bait in front of you that Satan has woven very articulately just for you, say no to the bait. Change what you do, where you go, where you put yourself, and what you're looking at. It leaves me with this idea of replacement theory. If you've ever tried to stop doing bad things and start doing God things, you ever notice how hard it is just to stop and to start doing holy things? That's because the, the, we are not wired for that, that. We are wired to be worshipers. We are wired to worship something. And so we worship our way out of sin. We worship our way out of sin. We worship our way out of the world. We replace what the world gave us with what is holy and eternal and that which will satisfy. So that's the three hooks of hell. And then Jesus says something very interesting that I want to leave you with. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in, your, in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And so what does that mean for us? I'm going to go really quickly here, just in the interest of time, so bear with me. This is straight out of Leviticus 2.13. If you look back to the sacrificial time uh, in, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 2.13, we find out that grain offerings were to be salted, were to be salted. What does that mean? Well, it means that the offering that we gave the Lord was to be set apart or purified. That's a salt shaker, by the way. So there was the sense that salt purified. And so what it was is it was to be a purified sacrifice, a purified sacrifice. Our lives to, are to be purified, living sacrifices to the Lord. So purify your sacrifice so that it is extra salty extra salty. We are to be Christians who have cut off the things of the world so much so that we've been purified for the work of the kingdom. That means sacrifice. That means, sac I'm going to say it again, that uh, sacrifice, does that connotate something easy? No, sacrifice means that it's hard to give up, doesn't it? Sacrifice means it's hard to give up. So here he's saying, stay salty. Everybody say that with me. I just love that as a catchphrase. Stay salty. You salty sea dog. I've been watching pirate movies. I don't know. Stay salty. It makes me think of Isaiah 6. You guys remember the picture, the vision in Isaiah 6 in the, key, the, the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah has this vision in Isaiah 6, and the angels come, and they bring what to the lips of Isaiah? They bring a coal, and, and when Isaiah is in the presence of God, he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips, right? Is that us today? Everybody should say amen, right? And the angel touches the coal to Isaiah's lips and purifies him so that he could do what? Now answer the call. 
answer the call to go and do ministry, to go and be the voice of God. We need to stay extra salty because this world needs the word of God and it needs the ministry of his people, doesn't it? So it's a worthy sacrifice that we would stay salty. It's, uh, and so it's interesting when he says that how can you lose the saltiness? Have you ever tried to make salt not salty? It literally cannot be done because salt in and of itself is salty, isn't it? And so here he's getting this. They would get their salt from the Dead Sea, okay? And so when they got their salt from the Dead Sea, they would take it in portions after the water had dried and they lift it up. But sometimes it wouldn't just be salt. It would also be the stuff called gypsum. And so your, your salt, things that looked white, you'd, you'd take it and it would end up not being salty at all. What's the principle for us there? Guys, if you're not salty, maybe you haven't been saved at all. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe if you're not willing to sacrifice your idols and let go and cut some of these things off, maybe you need to renew. Maybe for the first time you need to say, Lord, Lord, I renounce this world to cling to you. And maybe that's you here today. Maybe you're not salty because you're not salt at all. And we are called to be the salt of the earth. And I want to leave you then with 1 Corinthians 3.10. Can I read this for you? 1 Corinthians 3.10 through 11. This is called, for believers, this is called the Bema Seat of Christ. When I first heard this, I got really mad in church because I had lived my whole life in church and never heard about this thing called the Bema Seat of Christ, which is the judgment seat of Jesus. When Christians die... We don't go before the great white throne of judgment in Revelation, okay? In Revelation, it talks about the great white throne of judgment. All peoples go before that unless they profess faith in Jesus because that's where the judgment of our actions in our life are held before us. But believers, we go before what's called the tribunal or the bema seat of Christ, and here is talking about it. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. That's how do we build our lives, for no one can lay a foundation other than what that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. So those are all elements of the earth, yes? And so here he's saying, no matter how good it is, if it's of earthly kingdom, it will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed, it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. It'll be revealed by fire. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Here's the good news. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So what happens, Shane, if I bite on the hooks of hell and I'm a believer? Anybody got caught? Effectively, that decreases your effectiveness in the kingdom. And here's where people can attend church for years and years and years, and you never see the fruit of their ministry. But there's an encouraging word here. Even though you don't see maybe the fruit of God in your life, though he himself will be saved, that's good news, but as if through fire. Anybody ever heard the term skin of your teeth? So if you live a life for yourself and you say that you profess Jesus, 
thank goodness that there's a provision for you, but not a good one, not a strong one, that you will be saved, but as if through fire or by the skin of your teeth. What does that mean? Jesus' desire for us is to be purified in such a way that our ministry expands, the, and that means sacrifice. So what? Get salty. Stay salty. Would you gospelize your hands, your feet, and your eyes for the sake of this world and those who don't know Jesus? Small groups, the question for you is, what part of my body do I need to amputate? Figuratively. Don't go out and just start amputating, right? And Jesus here is saying we need to address our lives, not just cut off our limbs. Sometimes I think that would be easier, right? How do we replace hell's hooks with a gospel focus? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would do a great work purifying us, Lord, so that the world might see and hear your gospel. That is by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, that we might be saved and brought into the fold of the beloved Son. God, thank you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.